Andrew Gomison here wishing you a Merry Christmas from Speaking For Him. I'm so grateful that you've joined me today for the Speaking For Him podcast, and I hope that this broadcast will be a time for you to get encouragement on this journey that we call the Christian life because it is a marathon and not a sprint and we need each other. Well, today I am doing something kind of unique in the Speaking For Him podcast. I do a lot of movie reviews, as you know, but I don't usually go back and do a movie review of a movie that I have seen many times and that is a classic. And today that is what I'm doing. I will be reviewing the 1946 Frank Capra classic, It's a Wonderful Life. This movie has a great deal of meaning for me as it has always been important to my family. Very interesting factoid about It's a Wonderful Life to lead off today's broadcast is that this particular movie was kind of a flop when it first came out. And even though it was nominated for a lot of Oscars, Every Oscar that it was nominated for went to another movie that was produced and came out around the same time called The Best Years of Our Lives. Now, interestingly enough, I did watch that movie a few years ago, and it did not resonate with me to the level that It's a Wonderful Life has. But here's how It's a Wonderful Life made its way into the echelon of movie classics. In the 1970s, the movie It's a Wonderful Life slipped into what is called public domain. Public domain means that anyone can show it without paying money to do so, or at least back then they could. I'm not sure if someone currently holds the rights. But the reason that this movie became so prominent was because it was in the public domain, and so local TV stations could pick it up and play it around Christmas time. And it was often the kickoff to the holiday season for many networks. I know that often we would watch it on Thanksgiving or sometime that Thanksgiving weekend. It is also interesting to note that when my family uh, first got a VCR, I know I'm dating myself by saying that, but when my family first got a VCR, we bought two videotapes, One of them was the not-so-great moments in sports, and one of them was It's a Wonderful Life, because it had long been a favorite of my father, and he showed it to us regularly. Another factor that makes It's a Wonderful Life so important to me is that I have been able to portray Sam Wainwright twice in the stage adaptation of this classic film for Master Arts Theater in both 2005 and 2013, and particularly the 2005 performance gave me a lot of uh, good feelings and just made me very excited to be involved with the wonderful people at Master Arts, and I have some lifelong friends that I met during that production. Especially, I want to give a shout out right now to Amy Hildor and Jay Harnish. Amy is like an older sister to me, and I talk to her regularly to this day, and she is just a blessing in my life. And without Jay, I would not have 
a website. Jay Harnish is a blessing to me as well, and he is the one who designed and maintains and pays for my website. I will just take a moment now to let you know that we are contemplating what the next steps are for the website, so please bear with us as we go into 2024 and hopefully make some positive changes to the website that will make it more user-friendly and hopefully make it a place where people will want to visit more often. But with that being said, I'm excited to jump into my review of Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life from 1946. Well, who are you? I told you, George, I'm your guardian angel. What is it you want, Mary? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Welcome home, Mr. Bailey. Santa Mandel Hogwash. I wish I had a million dollars. Mr. and Mrs. Martini, welcome home. This is what I wished for. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. And there you have a trailer for It's a Wonderful Life. I believe this trailer came from one of the times that they remastered this movie. Obviously, since it's almost 80 years old, it's been under a lot of different opportunities to be remastered. One of the things they did to it several years ago was colorize it. I remember reading that Jimmy Stewart hated the colorized version and didn't think that black and white films should be colorized. Interestingly enough, in preparation for this podcast episode, I watched the black and white edition and the colored edition. So I thought that was an interesting experience and I'm excited, as I said, to dig into this movie with you. So for those who may not have seen It's a Wonderful Life, I feel bad for you because it is one of the greatest movies of all time. I think I actually ranked it as my number one Christmas movie of all time back when I did my top ten Christmas movies uh, because it has had such a profound impact on me. But the general synopsis goes like this. George Bailey is a dreamer and he's always talking about getting out of small town Bedford Falls, and seeing the world and making a gigantic contribution to it by building things or by coming up with new innovations. Uh, that's his desire. And he's raised by a father who is a hardworking, honest man who wants to help other people. And you can definitely see that character quality rub off on George through the film. So as George grows, he learns how to be a man of character. It starts out with him um, actually contemplating suicide, and then an angel is going to be sent down to help him rethink his decision. But before that can happen, 
the angel needs to know about him. So Clarence sits in for about an hour plus of the movie. He spends time getting to know George Bailey. So we first see George as a 12 year old in 1919 and he actually saves Mr. Gower, the druggist from ruin because he realizes that in a drunken stupor because of the death of his son, Mr. Gower is about to poison a kid and he stops him from doing so. So he endears himself to Mr. Potter and saves Mr. Potter, as I said, from ruin. Then we see George Bailey going to talk to his dad and we see his first uh, on-screen encounter with Mr. Potter and he gets frustrated with Mr. Potter for the way he treats his dad and uh, he pushes him and is like really upset and says, don't let Mr. Potter talk to you like that. Then we fast forward and we get to a point where Harry is about to graduate from high school. But before I talk about that, let me backtrack and say that before we get to the drugstore with Mr. Gower, we see George save his brother Harry from drowning and he loses hearing in one ear as a result. So you can see all of these events that are happening to George and around George are opportunities for George to make a difference in people's lives. He sees them as little and insignificant as they are happening, but when you put them all together as a lifetime, you realize that they do make a difference and that they are something significant. And so then we see adult George. He's getting ready to leave uh, for an adventure in Europe, and then he's going to go to college and move on with his life. But circumstances intervene to make that virtually impossible, mainly because of George's big heart and character. George goes to his brother Harry's graduation party, and he dances with Mary Hatch, who I need to say um, has had feelings for George ever since they were little kids. There's a scene in the beginning at the drugstore where Mary leans in and in his deaf ear tells him that she'll love him till the day he dies. So we're fast-forwarded to the graduation party. George dances with Mary, and it's not made clear that they win the Charleston contest. Um, I think some people assume they did because um, they fell into a pool, which was actually under the gym, uh, because the guy that was originally Mary's date was jealous when Mary started dancing with George and he wanted them to end up in the pool. Well, they kept dancing after they were in the pool. And so some people assume that they won that Charleston contest, though it's not made clear in the film or the play. And so we have a situation where George and Mary are soaking wet. And so then they change clothes in the locker room at the school and we see them walking home from the dance and they're singing with each other and they have a really romantic time with one another, um, enjoying each other's company. And I know when I was watching this as a kid, it was hard for me to understand why George wanted to go away from this because in my personal estimation, the life that George had in Bedford Falls is actually something that I aspire to. So, it was hard for me to understand that George being 
the wanderer and the adventurer that he was wanted more and thought that that wasn't enough. So anyway, after the hijinks and shenanigans and fun times that he has with Mary, including um, stepping on her bathrobe and her running out of it when she's scared that he's going to kiss her, then we see Uncle Billy and um, others come to George where he is on the street and say, your father's had a stroke. The next scene that we see is that uh, Peter Bailey, George's father, has passed away, and now they're discussing the future of the Bailey building and loan. This is really a turning point in the film because up until this point, the plan had been for George to go away to college for four years. Um, he's already waited four years to go to college while he's saving money because his parents didn't have the money to send him. And so he saved up his money, and now he's going to college for four years. Harry is going to work at the building and loan. And then when George is done with college, Harry will go to college. Well, then Peter Bailey dies, and Mr. Potter, who is still mean and still wants to get his way, says, I want the building and loan to end. I don't want it to be around anymore. I think it should go into receivership back to the people who have money into it and it should just be dissolved. And originally they're going to go along with that and and then George gets upset with Mr. Potter and he delivers what I consider to be one of the best monologues in movie history. And when I had the opportunity to teach a fine arts class at Potter's house, I brought their attention to this scene because I thought it was very powerful I'd like to share it with you now. This is Mr. Potter and George Bailey tussling about the future of the Bailey building and loan. And I think it's just so important and defines both Peter Bailey's character as George lays it out and also George Bailey's character as he learned it from his father. So here is that important and pivotal scene. What does that get us? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, I say... Just a minute, just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Potter. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny-ante building alone, I'll never know, but... Neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Well, here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they... What did you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait? Wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they... Do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. 
Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I, you're the, you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. So, as I said, it's a very moving and pivotal scene to the rest of the film because George never goes to college. He never goes to Europe. He stays in Bedford Falls. And he waits for Harry to come back. He sends Harry to school. Harry's going to come back in four years and run the building in loan. And they fight to keep the town from ceding into the control of Mr. Potter. Uh, Mr. Potter is the meanest man in town. And he is the richest man in town. And he makes the lives of those around him miserable because all he wants is power. And it's really a telling thing that George has the influence to be able to keep Potter at bay. And there's actually a pivotal scene later in the movie where Potter tries to hire George and George says first reluctantly that he is going to consider it after talking to his wife. And then he says, there's nothing I have to consider. The answer is no, you're nothing but a scurvy little spider. And then he permanently and forever makes himself Potter's enemy. And so he begins to build houses for people. There's a point at which Sam Wainwright calls Mary. Sam kind of pretends to be interested in Mary, but I don't think it's a really strong interest because he's talking to her while he's got another girl hanging on him. So I don't think he was extremely devastated uh, to have George and Mary get together. As a matter of fact, I think you could read between the lines and maybe figure that Sam what might have been thinking, well, maybe I can drive these two together. I don't know for sure, but that's one way I like to look at it. But anyway, there's a pivotal scene where they're talking on the phone, and one little thing that often I miss when I watch it, but I've thought about these last couple viewings, is the fact that... Sam says that he wants to build a factory right outside of Rochester, and then George recommends an empty factory right there in Bedford Falls. He says, the factory closed, half the people in Bedford Falls lost their jobs, they'd be willing to come to work for you right away if you chose to uh, build your factory in Bedford Falls, so I think you should do that. And so that saved a lot of people's jobs. And so in the end of the movie... Uh, in the penal, in the ultimate scene where they're giving him money, more than one person knows that they would not have their livelihood if it wasn't for him. And I think that perhaps that factory was a big part of it. So you see George finally, even though he fought it, realized that he was in love with Mary, marry her. They set up housekeeping in the old Granville house. He fights the domestic war on the home front while the World War II is raging because he's 4F, because of his one-year deafness. Um, and he goes to church and prays with his family, and he raises four children. And then 
we are brought to present day, according to the film, and Clarence the angel comes down to seek to convince George that life is worth living. Now, one of the things I really like about this film is that it asks the question, how significant is your life? And it gives you an example of how your life could be extremely significant. How all of the little things that we do in our lives can come together to make one giant tapestry of impact on other people. Most of us, if we were asked, what kind of impact have you made on others, we might not think it's that great. I know there have been times in my life where I have felt, hey, I haven't really done all that much significant. But then when I step back and look at the opportunities that God has afforded me, I realize that he is using me in some profound and remarkable ways. And so this movie has spoken to me in a great way, and I'm so grateful that it was made. And it's so interesting how it was kind of just another movie, and then it slipped in to the public domain and became a mainstay of the holiday season. And a lot of different people and films have parodied it in one way or another. One prominent place that that has happened is on the radio program Avengers and Odyssey, uh, because the names of the parents of the Barkley family, which is my favorite Odyssey family, are George and Mary Barkley, and their children are named Jimmy and Donna Barkley, and then Stuart Reed Barkley. All of those names have significance to It's a Wonderful Life, because George and Mary are the names of the Baileys, Donna and Jimmy are the names of the actors playing the Baileys, and... Stuart Reed is the last names of the principal actors for It's a Wonderful Life. And it's just so neat for me as a lover of classic television and cinema to be able to enjoy this film and see the great performances uh, that are put on. One of the things that I can definitely say is that this is a phenomenal cast and I wanted to talk a little bit about a few of them. It's a huge cast, so I'm not going to talk about all of them, but James Stewart played George Bailey. Donna Reed played Mary Hatch. Lionel Barrymore was Mr. Potter. Thomas Mitchell was Uncle Billy. Henry Travers was Clarence. Beulah Bondi was Mrs. Bailey. All of these actors and actresses were top-notch, and it's so neat that they all came together to make this wonderful story. This was Jimmy Stewart's first movie after World War II, and so I think a lot of the emotion that he brought to the character of George Bailey had to do with the emotions that he was feeling coming off that great experience of World War II. Jimmy Stewart could have gotten an actor's exemption to stay away from the action of the war, but he chose instead to fight for his country, even though it meant that he tried to gain weight to get into the service, and when he couldn't gain enough weight, he asked the person who was signing people up to lie about his weight so that he could get into the army. And he ended up being a decorated fighter pilot uh, who quoted Psalm 91 when he would fly fighter missions in the skies of World War II. And I've just always admired that about Jimmy, that even though he was an actor and a prolific one at that, he really wanted to serve his country. Don Reed 
was excellent as Mary Hatch. She just brought a great uh, personality and compassion to the role of Mary. And in many ways, Mary is a huge hero of this film too, because she continues to believe in George. She continues to support George. Um, she doesn't want big flashy things. She just wants a small town life with the man that she loves. And she wants to raise children with him and, and make him happy. And she really does seek to do that. Lionel Barrymore, plays Mr. Potter. Apparently, Lionel Barrymore was instrumental in getting Jimmy Stewart to do the film. Thomas Mitchell is Uncle Billy, and he is a very sympathetic character. I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize is he does mention losing his wife, and that's one of the reasons why he is kind of absent-minded and is borderline going insane. And the reason we know that he's borderline going insane is because without George and the alternative to... Bedford Falls, if George had never been born, we find out that he did go insane and get committed. Then we have Henry Travers as Clarence. Uh, he has such a simplistic and jovial attitude, and it comes through greatly on this film, and I can't think of a better guy to play Clarence. Then we have Beulah Bondi as Mrs. Bailey. I believe she played... Uh, Jimmy Stewart's mom in at least one other movie, if not more. Uh, her sensibilities as Mrs. Bailey were just greatly appreciated. And so this film was very well done. And like I said, because of my earlier ranking, uh, you know, I definitely have a bias toward this film. It's definitely going to get a five out of five. I can say that because of how many times I've watched it and how much I appreciate it. So the positive is abounding in this film, and you really see how George is constantly sacrificing for others. When Harry comes back uh, from school, he comes back with a wife, and he comes back with a job offer that will take him away from the building and loan. And so that continues this struggle that George has with wanting to leave but not being able to leave for the sake of the people that rely on the building and loan. And it's just an interesting picture to think about. Are we willing to sacrifice for others? You know, the Bible says, let each esteem other better than themselves. And so I really think that this movie is an important example of how exactly to do that. And the reason that George had so much support at the end of the movie was because he was willing to put himself last to all the people that he loved and cared about. And you really see how he made such an impact. Like one of the characters was divorced and his wife was gone in the alternate reality. Um, and his mom was bitter because she only had one son and that was Harry and he broke through the ice you know, there's just so many people that were different people. The name of the town was different. It was Pottersville because Potter was able to get the ultimate upper hand and no one was there to stop him. George played that role. And so I think it's just so important for us to keep in mind that one person can make a difference. If there's any negatives in this film, there are very few, but one that sticks out to me is the fact that Harry 
said that he had a surprise and then he comes back with a wife and a job offer. Um, this seems like something that he would have at least written a letter about even in that time period. So I'm not sure why they wrote it that way. I, and it definitely puts George between a rock and a hard place. Cause it doesn't sound like there was much of a discussion. It was just, these are the facts. And then George didn't want to be the bad guy by telling Harry that he couldn't take the job. Um, and so he just let him and then his course for the future was set and it was frozen in Bedford Falls. And then of course later he marries Mary Hatch and he's able to build a family in Bedford Falls. I also always find it interesting that she was able to buy the old Granville house where they had broken out windows when they were on their date and fix it up. In today's day and age, there's no way she would have been approved to buy that house, but I guess there was a lot less red tape then. I think also, and I guess this is a human tendency, but I find it really hard to believe that George wouldn't say anything to his wife about what he was going through at all and actually contemplate hurling himself into the swirling waters to commit suicide. Now, I know that's a pivotal point of the movie, and we don't always tell our family about the things that are bothering us the most, but I think as someone who wears his emotions on his sleeve and has a real hard time not telling people what's going on in my life, I had a hard time relating with that aspect of the story. But even in that, it's very interesting how he was still helping others even as he was dealing with this because he never pointed the finger at Uncle Billy. He never said, Uncle Billy took the money. I don't know where it is. And so now we're going through this struggle. He took the full responsibility for it. And I'm almost surprised that no one suspected Mr. Potter and that that wasn't part of the movie. But again, this is a woven tapestry and I, I think it, the, every attempt was made to make this a realistic story and not just one with movie plot points. And so I think that might be one reason why no one realized I mean, I understand that Uncle Billy is absent-minded, but it kind of would have been nice for my sensibilities if eventually he remembered where the money had gone, but that never happens. Also, a negative thing to me is that Mr. Potter never gets his comeuppance. Uh, he doesn't get in trouble um, for what he does. We don't see him being arrested or taken out of the town for being so degrading to others. But I guess, again, the lesson of the movie is that he is reaping his own punishment by not having any friends, not having anyone that wants to be around him. So those are kind of the negatives. So what is the biggest lesson uh, that I take away from this film. 
I think the biggest lesson that I take away from this film is, first of all, that we need each other. This is not a solitary life that we are called to live. We need to be in community. One of the best things about It's a Wonderful Life is that it's a small town community. Everybody knows George. Everybody came to his aid when he needed help because they knew the kind of person that he was. And they knew that he had helped them through the years. And as I said, as you watch this film, you see a whole group of individual events pile one on top of another to become a huge contribution that he made to Bedford Falls. They very well could have called this town Baileyville for all of the contributions that he made to the town and would have been justified in doing so. Uh, There was a housing development and neighborhood that did have his name, and that was Bailey Park, uh, that were all the houses that the building alone built for people to get out of Potter slums. And I think that's another point that was made too, is that when the building alone built houses, they built high quality houses. There's a line in the film that says he's building the prettiest houses you've ever seen. And so I think quality is another thing that speaks to integrity. And I just really like the lesson that family and friends are important. Community is important. We need each other and Every single person has the opportunity to make a positive impact on their world. And God puts us all on this earth for a purpose. And without us, things would be completely different. And even without the things that happen to us, things would be completely different. I sometimes contemplate, what would I be like if I was not in a wheelchair, if I could walk from the very beginning? I probably wouldn't be living at home right now, uh, but I also very likely would not be doing a podcast ministry. Um, and so you can't just change one thing and have everything else be the same. I think you change one thing and everything changes. And this movie brings that out. I think another lesson that this movie teaches is you need to be honest with the people that you love. George thought that his life was over. George thought there was no way that he could get the $8,000. And what he found out is that when it was honestly brought forth that he had a need, then the people were able to meet it. I've never had a challenge that was that daunting, Uh, but I have relied on the generosity of others to help me in daily life. I have relied on the generosity of others to help me buy a vehicle that I could be able to minister in and also just be able to get around in my daily life. And I've been so thankful for their generosity. It is okay and needful for us to rely on others. So, the fact that family is important and that we can make an impact on others in big and small ways just through our daily life. It doesn't have to be something extremely miraculous. Like there wasn't one miraculous event where George was like lauded for making this huge impact. It was the 
going through his life and stepping back and looking at this whole vast configuration of many events that helped others to see how much George had meant. And I think it was important for us as the viewer of the movie to see it through Clarence's eyes. And that brings me to our quote of the day. I know I usually start the broadcast with the quote of the day, but allow me to end it with that this time. And our quote of the day is as follows. This is a quote from Clarence. That is one interesting thing about this movie is it's very quotable and very iconic. And as I said, different variations on the theme of It's a Wonderful Life have been replicated so many times because it's become so iconic. And even the fact that it slipped into public domain so that more and more people could enjoy it is somewhat an accident, but I think in many ways is fortuitous and might even be providential because it has such a powerful message. But the quote of the day is from Clarence. He says, Strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? And that is from It's a Wonderful Life, as quoted by Clarence, when George is starting to realize how different life was when he had the opportunity to see what it would be like if he had never been born. And that message and that quote in particular has resonated to me on numerous occasions. I remember one particular time when I was feeling down and feeling like I hadn't made that much of an impact. And I was actually on my way home from work uh, at Right to Life of Michigan many years ago, and I actually could not go directly home, and I had gotten in the habit of going to this coffee shop across the way after work because I got out of work at 8. I think my brother at the time got out of work at 9.30 or 10, um, or at least 9. So there was like an hour, hour and a half possibly two hours at the most, where I needed somewhere to go, so I'd go over to that coffee shop. Well, one time, I started making my way over there, and it was closed. So I was like, I need to make it from Byron Center, where I was, Byron Center and Porter, where I was, to Byron Center and 28th Street, which wasn't really that far, but required me to cross a couple streets and... I was going to go to Russ's and wait for my brother. Well, it turned out that the sidewalks were snow covered and I was super scared of getting stuck in the snow on the sidewalk and freezing to death because it was very cold. And I was like, what do I do? So I made the decision based on the necessity of the moment to go out on the road and drive down the side of the road in the road till I got to 28th Street and Byron Center. That is something that I would never do today. It was something that was scary at the time, and I don't recommend it. But I made it. And when I made it through that experience, I started to think, you know, God has a plan. 
And there's actually been several times in my life where I doubted God and then I saw God work. So I really think one of the great lessons of this film is that God has a plan. And even though George was being thwarted from the plan that he thought was best, God was working out his plan for George and for Bedford Falls. I realize this is a fictional construct, but if George had left Bedford Falls, he would not have been able to help the people in the way that he ended up doing. And even Sam Wainwright, the rich guy who was always teasing George but was ultimately a friend to him, did help them out when he instructed his office to forward up to $25,000 to George for the needs of the building and loan. He understood, even though George turned down a career in plastics, that what George was doing was important. And I really appreciate that. And I'm glad that there was that sort of redemption arc, if you will, for Sam Wainwright. I mean, he never really was a bad guy, but you kind of get the feeling at certain points in the film that he's disconnected from the needs of the average Joe in Bedford Falls. But in the end, you realize that he understands that George knows what's important. Well, that's my review of It's a Wonderful Life. If you have any thoughts on this film or any other podcast that I've done, I would appreciate if you give me feedback. If you send me feedback this week, I may be able to use it in my end of year show next week where I share with you some highlights from the year that was in 2023. And I'm very excited to do that. I hope that you've enjoyed this movie review. If you haven't watched It's a Wonderful Life, might I encourage you to do so. You can watch it on Amazon Prime right now. And Amazon Prime actually has both the black and white and the colored versions of this film. So if you want a feel-good piece of nostalgia to bring you into the holiday spirit, I would recommend Frank Capra's 1946 classic, It's a Wonderful Life. And as I said earlier, I give it a hearty five stars. It's hard to find a movie that will even come close to It's a Wonderful Life. Well, that's about all I have time for on the show today. I hope that you have a wonderful week and a Merry Christmas. And I just want to encourage you, even as we go into the holiday season and beyond, to keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review. 